Welcome to MHM Podcast Network on MovieHouseMemories.com. Podcast for pod people. Our feature presentation begins now. You're listening to a classic episode of Lunchtime Movie Review on the MHM Podcast Network from our original set of reviews from August 2011 to December 2012. And we are the children of the 80s. Back to lunchtime movie review, where we review the movies from our childhood. I'm Matt. I'm Snowflake. Greg. Jay. And I'm Patrick. And this week we're bringing, I think, the first drama we've ever done so far. Yeah, Rain Man. That was a great comedy, wasn't it? <laughs> it was a fantasy. <laughs> the retard can count cards. <laughs> That's right. We did. Rain Man was the first. Uh... And this week we're bringing 1989's Glory. But first, a word from our sponsor. This podcast is brought to you by Matthew Broderick's School of Acting. Twist and shout your way through our courses to become an A-list actor. At Matthew Broderick's Acting School, you can learn the art of breaking the fourth wall and delivering sarcastic dialogue. Life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could end up in a bona fide drama. Don't worry. Matthew Broderick's School of Acting will help you with all types of accents, except Boston accents. We don't teach Boston accents. We'll also help you convincingly deliver emotionally powerful lines such as... Thank you, Governor. That's, that's a wonderful idea. And... It is my job to get these men ready. And I will. And even... There's more to fighting than rest, sir. There's character. Matthew Broderick School of Acting also offers singing and dancing courses to those who are over 35. Matthew Broderick School of Acting, hoping you're never cast with people with actual talent. Glory, hallelujah. That was one of them, right? Was that one of the... Yeah, you got... My God. My God. My God. <laughs> you're good with a gun. <laughs> Faster. 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 <laughs> Colored soldiers, Rob. Just think of it. Wonderful. Greg, give us glory. The movie takes place during the Civil War, and its story is based on the 54th Massachusetts Volunteer Infantry, the first unit of the U.S. Army made up entirely of black soldiers. Consistent with Hollywood doctrine, this story of brave black soldiers during our nation's time of greatest crisis can best be told through the eyes of a white man. In 1989, there was but one white actor who possessed the qualities necessary to play spokesperson and emissary for all African Americans. And he wasn't available? And the man who had the gravitas one would expect of surrogate Negro. And that actor was Matthew Broderick of Project X and War Games fame. <laughs> Matthew Broderick plays Robert Gould Shaw, who is one of the only historical figures in this movie that is based on history. Shaw was born in 1837 in Boston to a family of great wealth and social and political prominence. Shaw's parents were abolitionists, and Shaw took up the family cause by dropping out of Harvard and taking a commission as an infantry officer shortly after the Civil War began. Kind of like Bill Gates. I mean, just dropping out of Harvard. <laughs> <laughs> Glory begins with Shaw, now a captain, leading an infantry unit at the Battle of Antietam which would become the bloodiest single day in our nation's history, with about 23,000 casualties. This could be explained by the method of war at this time. We see Shaw leading his men into battle. All 12 of them in this movie. Yes, uh, with bayonets raised while they're marching headlong into rifle and cannon fire. Shaw suffers a minor flesh wound to his neck, but a greater wound to his psyche. He spends the rest of the movie wrestling with PTSD, or in playground terminology, whether or not to puss out. <laughs> After the horrors he witnessed both in the battlefield and at the army hospital, Shaw now spills punch onto his dress blues anytime a servant closes a shutter. After the quote-unquote victory at Antietam, Lincoln called it a victory, 
Lincoln issues the Emancipation Proclamation while Shaw's neck heals. At a reception hosted by his parents at their stately home, Shaw meets Massachusetts Governor John Andrew and Frederick Douglass, a very tall black man. Governor Andrew informs Shaw that he and Mr. Douglass have worked together to form an all-black infantry regiment entitled the 54th Massachusetts, which causes Shaw's mother to swoon. Colored soldiers, Rob, just think of it. Governor Andrew then offers Shaw the commission to be colonel and commanding officer of the 54th Massachusetts. After a bit of racial needling by Shaw's close friend and drunkard, Cabot Forbes, Shaw accepts his commission and asks Forbes to be his major and second in command. Cabot Forbes is played by Carrie Ellis, and uh, director Edward Zwick settled on the name of Cabot Forbes after rejecting the names of Preston Vanderbilt and Armstrong Cavendish because those names just aren't white enough. (laughs) Also volunteering for the 54th is Shaw's friend and Harvard classmate John Searles. The character of John Searles exists to offset the Hollywood doctrine that any group of black men greater than three is considered a gang. (laughs) Since Searles has received a classical, i.e. white, education befitting of any respectable white man, he becomes the magic Negro that adds class to the mostly illiterate band of runaway slaves that make up the rest of the 54th. However, Searles is immediately confronted in a tent by his foil, Private Trip, played by Denzel Washington, who calls Searles a house and snowflake. Searles also suffers shock when Colonel Shaw forbids him from having a friendly conversation with his friend and former Harvard classmate, Forbes. Many more men join the regiment, including a a freed black man named Jupiter Shart, who has a stutter, (laughs) and the gravedigger, John Rawls. Wasn't a stutter. It's pronounced Jupiter. (laughs) And the gravedigger, John Rawls, played by Morgan Freeman. The rest of the movie shows the progress of the 54th Massachusetts, uh, the, how they are uh, whipped figuratively and, uh, in the case of Private Trip, literally into shape by the stereotypical Irish Sergeant Major named Sergeant McColhay because Sergeant Aaron Gobra Sullivan just wasn't Irish enough. Uh, we, we see how the infantry unit is deprived of necessities like uniforms, decent socks and shoes, food and provisions. Uh, At the military camp, the company is forced to endure Sergeant Major McCulhay. And after spending time doing all sorts of, uh, well, tasks that I guess these uh, men were used to being runaway slaves, Shaw realizes that his unit is going to be used only for manual labor and they're never going to get the taste of battle. Uh, Some people would call that racism. Others would call it effective use of resources. Shaw confronts his commanding officers, uh, who are uh, real historical names, but not historically accurate. Uh, He finds that they're involved in uh, war profiteering and and all sorts of uh, corrupt deeds, and he threatens to report them to the War Department if they do not order the 54th Infantry into uh, some type of suicide mission immediately. Uh, So shortly after that, Shaw's request is granted and the regiment participates in a little minor skirmish in South Carolina where they uh, cause the Confederate Confederate soldiers to retreat. Then becomes the pinnacle of the movie. Uh, Shaw volunteers the 54th Infantry to lead an assault on Fort Wagner, uh, a Confederate stronghold just outside of Charleston in South Carolina. After nightfall, sort of. Uh, he leads the men in a charge upon the fort. Nightfall, a.k.a. 3.30 p.m. Right, right. Uh, Shaw attempts to rally the men forward, but he himself is shot and killed, along with Private Trip and numerous other soldiers uh, as they try to uh, charge up the parapet. But at least Shaw's wife got to run away on the beach. <laughs> <laughs> He smacked her in the ass and let her gallop away. She ran off to New York and then made a television series for HBO. And the final scene shows uh, deceased uh, Colonel Shaw being buried in a grave with uh, his men, including uh, Private Trip, as a symbol, I suppose, of something greater. Uh, The reality was that's what the Confederates did as a further insult to white officers. Buried them with black men. That's not funny at all. I know. (laughs) Not at all. Which historically I found was interesting is that's really how they were able to take that fort. Right. Because of the the graves of all those dead bodies 
polluting the water supply. It's tough to bury people in sand, I would think. I think that would be pretty tough. I thought they said at the end of the movie that fort was never taken. No, it was eventually taken. Well, I mean, I know we won the war. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which well, mean we. Yeah, I don't yeah, I don't he, quite <laughs> <laughs> I think that the fort was never taken is language that uh, Jay over here could appreciate because <clears throat> the Confederates fled the fort like 2 months later. Because the water supply was right. polluted by the right. dead, rotting bodies buried nearby. I mean, I, I would think surrender is is the same as taking, but yeah, I guess we not. ended up with the fort. Right, that is the north. But I thought it was ironic that it was all those. The very end scene was the the dead uh, being buried in these mass graves, which is ultimately caused what caused the Confederates to uh, surrender to the, yeah. the fort. All right, December nineteen eighty nine. What else is out this time. Uh, Glory was released on December 14th, 1989. Was released the same day as Blaze Family Business, which also had Matthew Broderick driving Miss Daisy, which also had uh, Morgan Freeman. And uh, still playing a slave. It's uh, essentially still playing a slave, yeah. To the Jew. <laughs> <laughs> also, We're No Angels, and one of Jason's favorite, The Wizard, was came out that day. Oh, The Wizard was oh. great, man. Uh, Red Savage, man. man. Power glove. Uh, it was That's also right. released the, the the longest commercial ever made. <laughs> That's the same month as always. Tango and Cash, The War of the Roses, She Devil, and Christmas Vacation. It grossed uh, just over twenty six million dollars. It was the forty fifth highest grossing film of nineteen eighty nine, right behind The Dream Team, Do the Right Thing, and All Dogs Go to Heaven, and right in front of Sex Lies and Videotape, Nightmare on Elm Street Five, The Dream Child, and the movie Dad with Ted Danson. Nominated for five Academy Awards, winning three. Dad? Dad. Was nominated for five Academy Awards? No. Oh, Glory. Oh, Glory. Glory was nominated for <laughs> I'm just five. glad it eked out Nightmare on Elm Street Part 5. <laughs> uh, nominated for five Academy Awards, winning three for Best Sound, Best Cinematography, and Best Supporting Actor for Denzel Washington. Well, to give you an idea of what else is going on in 1989, capitalism is king. The first elections... Throughout the uh, nation, in many countries, and many formerly uh, either communist or other other countries have their first capital elections, and news that that's right. Uh, about a month before yeah. this came out, the Berlin Wall came down, right? Well, it's, there's Roughly? news that it's getting ready to come. Down. Okay. It comes down a couple months later. A couple months later, okay. uh, but this month, East and West Germany actually is able they're able to travel. So the wall's not down, but there there's open entry exit through East and West Germany. So capitalism taken over uh in gay news homosexual acts are decriminalized in western australia and there you have it in <laughs> housing crisis this is where we are now america so, on the verge so, black president so mad max finally went beyond thunder that's right <laughs> in um possibly related news that same right after that happens Ebenezer Floppin' Sloppers Wonderful Water Slides in Oakbrook Terrace Illinois closes down after an accident on one of the slides Mm. I just like the name. <laughs> you just like to say the word sloppers. <laughs> sloppers. <laughs> Sounds like the... That is pretty gay news. Yeah, in, that's another gay news. Related that, to... That's, that's like something right out of National Lampoon's Vacation. It is, uh, right? Uh, except Chevy Chase would still make that unfunny. <laughs> <laughs> Related to glory, Douglas Wilder is the first African-American to be elected as governor in Virginia. Well, as governor in the country, and that happened in Virginia. Also, David Dinkins becomes the first African-American mayor of New York City. So, glory, governor, and mayor of New York. Go black community. Uh, the three of the most popular songs, the number one songs at this time, late um, late November into, into January. Please, one of them be Millie Vanilli. <laughs> Blame it on the rain. Millie Vanilli. Yeah. yeah. Again, black guys stealing white guys' music. <laughs> <laughs> also, we didn't start the fire, Billy Joel, and another day in paradise, Phil Collins. You know what, Billy Joel? You did start the fucking fire. <laughs> <laughs> the classic, classic Alf is in its final season. Oh. Yeah. Gordon Shumway. Did he ever get that cat? <laughs> <laughs> and fortunately for NBC, they have 11 shows in the top 20. But unfortunately for NBC, some of those are Golden Girls, Empty Nest, In the Heat of the Night, and Matlock. <laughs> <laughs> so most of their main demographic is just about to die. That's 89. <clears throat> but can you believe those shows were all top 20 shows, man? All those old 
Alf, absolutely. No, 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 not Alf. Alf wasn't. Alf is just Mork and Mindy, but Mork is now a dude. Alf was puppet. Alf was not a top twenty show at that time. It was it was in its last season. Oh, the last season. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, old people need things to do. Dude, look at look at these shows. Old people were doing nothing but watching TV. You got as opposed to now when they're out water skiing. (laughs) (laughs) America's funniest home videos: The Golden Girls, Sixty Minutes, Empty Nest, Unsolved Mysteries, Murder She Wrote. L.A. Law, In the Heat of the Night, Dear John, Coach, and Matlock. That's some shitty, that's a shitty lineup right there. What are they not doing? Going to see movies about black people. Yeah. <laughs> Number one show, Roseanne. Roseanne, Cosby Show, and Cheers are the top three. So there you go. All right, Glory. Oh, we're going to talk about the movie Let's now? talk about the movie. What was this, this is... movie about? <laughs> Let's talk about the actors in here. Before we get to the one we want to talk about. <laughs> the lead, yeah. Talk about the, the the other three that I think of are, uh, well, the, the main two, Morgan Freeman and Denzel, but then Gary Elwes. Gary? Yeah. What did I say? Gary? Gary. I keep calling him Gary. Gary Elwes, the man in black from Princess Bride, and he's coming off the Princess Bride before this. Uh, the Princess Bride grossed like $5 in the theater, so oh. he, was, he was riding the big wave. The Princess Bride's a great film. No, it gained popularity after it in, came out. Right. Right. But he was in that, and at this point, it probably is hitting in with Are VHS we still on gay news? <laughs> <laughs> but Morgan Freeman and Denzel, well, let's, let's focus on Morgan for Morgan Freeman, Morgan, my buddy Morgan. What had he done uh, in film before this, other than The Electric Company, which is not film, but, I mean, he was great in The Electric Company. We'll just call him MF. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what that MF do? <laughs> uh, Morgan Freeman had actually already been nominated for Best Supporting Actor, I believe, in 1987 for Street Smart, where he played a pimp. Uh, to Christopher Reeve's uh, investigative reporter. Uh, he'd actually been in... He, Christopher Reeve? Christopher Reeve. I don't even that. remember that movie. So, uh, could not, he walk? Yeah, he still could walk at that point. This is before he fell off of Matthew's uh, wife? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but 1989 is a huge year for him. He has Lean on Me, Driving Miss Daisy, and then Glory all come out at the same time. So actually, he also has another movie called Johnny Handsome, which is not so good, but he has four films that are... They're, they're mainstream films at the time. So is Morgan Freeman nominated... Or does, is he is he nominated for best supporting for driving Miss Daisy? No, he's nominated for best lead no, for driving okay. Miss Daisy. Hmm. He's not nominated for this film at all. Only Denzel got a nomination. Yeah, Dan Aykroyd got the best supporting actor in driving <laughs> yeah. Miss Daisy. Dan Aykroyd got the yeah, that's true. Dan Aykroyd that's was horrible. nominated for best supporting actor. <laughs> well, I forgot yeah. that he was even in that. Oh my gosh! But then Morgan Freeman just takes off after this, and you've got Shawshank, and you got well everything else he's he's known for after this. But this is really his. Well, this, yeah, this is coming out years yeah. as far as establishing him as a lead actor. And then Denzel, I was interested in seeing. He really... Saying elsewhere. Yeah, that's it, right? <laughs> he, <laughs> he didn't do film. He was in Carbon Copy. Never heard of it. Or, that is where he's uh, the son a of a, a white guy. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, is he the black copy? He, he, he comes. No, he comes, he finds his father, and, and his father doesn't know he's even alive, that he had had a, a relationship with this... Uh, Denzel's mother years before she's died and he's an adult and he says hey I'm your son and it's how this guy is trying to adjust to the fact that he has a, a black son isn't that a Ted Danson Whoopi Goldberg movie also <laughs> oh no something. that was like a sperm donate yeah that's horrible yeah that's, that's back when they were dating is it the same movie <laughs> that's what I'm saying not saying oh it's as good as he'd only done he'd done Cry Freedom uh, which actually was where he's played Steve Biko and then he was in The Mighty Quinn um, that was the film right before he did Glory, but he'd done some roles, but nothing, nothing big. This is kind right. of his big role. And then after Glory again, he takes off, and you've got Ricochet, and then he moves on. Yeah, <laughs> Ricochet. Well, he does. Do, I'm saying he does Ricochet him into greatness. <laughs> Ricochet is his first lead, right? That's the first one where he's the lead. He's a lead. He's actor. the lead in uh, the Mighty Quinn. He's the lead in Cry for Never heard of it. I've heard of Ricochet. So. <laughs> anyway, he takes off, and he becomes, and it is Malcolm X. Two yeah. years later, maybe. Two or three years is not. I think it's not great in Malcolm X. You don't blur your I just can't. What deal? Any anytime someone brings up Denzel, you're like Malcolm X. Yeah, because he should have won. Well, it's like anytime someone mentions Jamie Foxx, you're like, hey, he played that blind guy. Yeah, well, and yeah, he should yeah, not I have won. He played Ray Charles. He should not have won. You don't have to associate the two. He's played a lot more than just Malcolm X. Den- Denzel steals the movie, though, right? And, I mean, well, yeah. and glory. Uh, we're going to say with acting. Denzel and, Mor- and Morgan Freeman's great. As he sure. says, he in all, almost everything he's in. But Denzel is head and shoulders above everyone else. Right. Academy got it right when he won the Best Supporting Actor that year. You got to see Matthew Broderick off camera. Be like, God damn it. Why couldn't they get someone who couldn't act? 
making me look bad. Making me look bad. <laughs> no, I, I imagine his response is, my God, he's a good he's a, actor. A very talented. Get that Gary Coleman on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> so we do come to Matthew Broderick, who is riding high just after Ferris Bueller's day off. <laughs> and Project Bilox, X. Project X. I, I Biloxi Blues. I would say that he's, he's already written that as far as it's going to go. Oh, I don't think so. I think Glory is where he wrote it, too. I mean, this was demonstrating. No, I think Glory's the wall he smashed into. It is. That's what I'm saying, is they only casted him because of all the other stuff they did, and he was considered a big draw. Very strange choice, though, even even just on paper, yeah. you know. Well, the film he does after this is The Freshman, where he goes back to being the young kid. Yeah, the, another straight... He's basically Ferris again. Yeah. yeah. Ferris going to college now. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, because this didn't work out, and Torch Song Trilogy right before this didn't work out as far as heavy drama, so he went back to comedy. He's, he a, just, comedic, he's a comedic actor. That's his... Sort of. <laughs> yeah, Warkins was hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's always exceptions You want to rule. play a game? So... <laughs> But he's mainly a comedic actor. That's his bread and butter. That's where he's most effective in his acting Right. Stuff. There's a character named Shart in this, and that's what he does all over this f***ing <laughs> screen every time he's on there. Little poop joke. Yeah, there he's very him. miscast. <laughs> yeah, and it's, and also a str- it's also a very strange characterization. I know Jason's got uh, some, you know, some things to say about that, but okay, I, I'm, all, I'm all right. This is fiction. It's based on history. They're taking a real person, and I'm okay with Hollywood making uh, Colonel uh, Shaw into whatever the director and the screenwriter just envisions. But it's it's just a weird character because it it is not historically accurate, and it doesn't really fit uh, the rest of the story about you know the the heroic deeds of of a, a class of people that. Uh, at least in the movie, they, which, again, is historically inaccurate, because the 54th Massachusetts was comprised almost entirely of northern blacks who were never slaves. They weren't runaway slaves like in the movie. So the movie picks that additional um, sort of conflict out or or They, they conflate a whole bunch of they do. Uh, regiments they into do. this one. And, and, and the volunteer army in the 54th Mass was really mostly middle-class black people. I mean, they weren't... Uh, they, they, they It wasn't like they had nothing nothing to lose which is sort of more of what what's depicted in glory i mean these are people that you the, know the, the idea that they're fighting for their honor that you know that they mm-hmm. um you know they don't have a lot of choices in life but that they're they're doing this the whole discussion between denzel and matthew at the end where well, you know they stink of it and nothing's going to change but um that I agree with you that yeah, and the true story is even more powerful because these were these right. were people that that actually had pretty good lives. They they were sacrificing something. They really were, and 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 because the cause was was great, and that and that was also consistent with the real uh, Colonel Shaw too, who was born to abolitionists. I mean, this is what he was raised in. He believed in it. Well, and reading a, a little bit about Shaw, I mean, this guy was a bona fide hero. I mean, he had a lot of very. He had a lot of really good qualities, and, and at least what they what they write about him is it's all superlatives. And Matthew Broderick is a shell, yeah, and and it just doesn't come across as him being genuine. It, it almost exactly it almost seems like well because his dad and it's never really explained why his dad has such prominence, but because his dad can literally get Abraham Lincoln you know by telegraph or what what have you you know have Abraham Lincoln's ear that this is why he is promoted to colonel. As opposed to something about his actual character, right. that, that he's earned this, that, that he's that proven he himself. he really wants to do this because he believes in the cause. Right. Well, and it I, wasn't even Matthew Broderick's character, the way he portrayed the character to uh, cause that. I mean, it was actually written in the script I agree. at the very beginning that uh, he, the character was like, you know, fall down at that first battle. I think it was Antietam, right? Antietam, right. And just fall down. Curl up in the fetal position and cry like a baby. Yeah, he sees the guy in front of him get smoked by the cannon, and he's and, out. and he's out. Right, and, they, he, and then he gets a little flesh wound in his neck. And the movie did a really poor job of trying to paint this guy as dealing with some sort of trauma of experiencing combat with what they're trying to do with his character throughout the movie. They're trying to take 20th century problems and put them back into 1860s Correct. with the PTSD. Well. I mean, the white guilt of being born into high society and fighting for, you know, basically slaves. Right. And I'm not going to deny maybe people in the Civil War had PTSD. It wasn't Colonel Shaw. And if you're going to write that as Colonel Shaw in the beginning where 
after he's injured and at Tatum, he goes to the house party and is starting to to get jumpy when he hears loud noises. You have to have some sort of transformation with that character in order for him to stand up at the end and say, I'm willing to lead my troops in the battle. And what they what he knew at that point was we are going to die. We're going to die yeah, to suicide die, mission. Take this fort. But even before that, all he wants to do is get these soldiers into combat. He's willing well, to blackmail other people. And the character is basically it's written against itself. You don't see any transformation. I was uh, yeah, and he had you know he had opportunities like for example when the scene where Shaw reads uh, it, it's some letter from uh, obviously the army explaining that the, the Confederate army if they capture a black regiment they will kill them if they capture white officers who are in charge of a black regiment they will kill them and he expects everybody to abandon and actually gives them leave and says look and if anyone wants out i'm not gonna you know question you you can you can get out which is a very strange thing because they've signed up for combat they've signed up for what is the bloodiest war anyone could ever imagine the casualties are immense, right? So, and, and so everyone knows this, that this threat of being captured and killed, <laughs> and killed, right? Right, but but then his character is overwhelmed the next morning when he sees that not one person has left, and they're all standing at attention. And then, okay, there's the opportunity for him to now, all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna suck it up and get over, you know, uh, you know my the, the the horrors that I've seen, and and but that it doesn't happen. He's still he's still a p- after that. Yeah, and not even that. He kind of slaps up uh, his executive officer that a dread part saying hey if you're not here the next day i understand like right like i know i'm a you gotta you're a wuss too and i'm actually verbalizing it well you know i found it interesting that you guys are talking about this that you know that it doesn't show this transition i think it does show the transition but there's no character development it's his the transition is i'm going to lead this group i'm going to lead this group and i thought it was interesting that they could have taken the point that if this guy has PTSD, if he's truly afraid, of course he wants to take this job. They're never going to see combat. That's what everybody right. keeps saying. He's, they're not going to see right. combat. Well, then I'll gladly lead this group of officers because they're never going to fight. And you had an opportunity to kind of see you know, see him kind of transition to wanting to fight again, but they didn't show that. It was like, I'm going to lead them, and every opportunity they get, he is very much, you know, train them right. And that that's my problem. No, if, I agree. If, they, if, they, if they wrote it where there was some transition to where he thought he wasn't going to be in combat, and then something happens where he realizes, you know what, combat's the best thing for us right. to that, do. That these men really want right. to do this. But initially and, he's avoiding it, and he, lo- he, he revels in the fact that he doesn't have to go to combat, but then he pushes forward. Right. And this right. Is, don't do that. And there's some legitimate motivation yeah. in this film, but there doesn't. There's not a a point where where there's a, a real motivation or a shift for this character Shaw. And well, that's where it's. I think his character is poorly written. Obviously, hands and, down, poorly acted. And then poorly acted but just on top. Poorly of it. written. And, and, and along those same lines, I think Tripp's character Denzel Washington is poorly written too, because he goes from being what's the point of this? We're still going to be right. slaves. Right. We're still, you know. And then all of a sudden. The A wall scene, where uh, which leads into the flogging, the public flogging, and then afterwards, Morgan Freeman, uh, you know, John Rollins informs Matthew Broderick he wasn't deserting; he was looking for shoes because and he wants to fight. Because yeah. he wants to fight, he wants to fight more than anyone else here. Which I don't know where that came from because that's everything that that Trip is saying belies that. But there was more character development for Trip. He joined the army he wanted to fight the world he just full of anger and then he kind of expressed the anger throughout the uh the movie and released a whole bunch of it during the fighting and at that last scene when all the enlisted soldiers are having almost that impromptu church service you can kind of tell that hey he's actually found a place he's found his place he's he's found his adoptive family basically and you can kind of see that character development in his I don't know his, his, what he was going through and found what he was looking for. I agree. I think there's more character development for for the trip character. Mm-hmm. I don't think it was enough just through it throughout the end, where you know in that last battle he carries the flag, and this is something that he didn't want to do. Yeah, he turned it down. Right. He was. He was. Well, I, Shaw said, "This is your. I, I'm giving you this honor if you want it. You've you've earned it." And he's like, "Yeah, thanks, but no thanks." And Not I think me. that last scene was a little bit more symbolic rather than more character-driven. What I was struck with, I don't know if this was intentional or if I'm just trying to force something on this movie, but I was kind of struck with 
the scenes of water. They uh, there was a scene with that you mentioned with uh, Colonel Shaw and Trip by the river or by a lake, saying, "Even if we win, even if the Union wins, there's still going to be racism. We're not going to be equal." And they keep saying everyone's covered in it, everyone's dirty, and want to get clean. Like almost racism and inequities is uh, uh, like a stain or dirty. And if you go back into the early parts of the movie when they're in basic training, they're marching through mud. Everyone's just covered in all the enlisted men are just covered in filth and all the white actors are clean. They're very clean, all the um, officers. And then fast forward back to that uh, scene where they're by the water, but they're not in the water. And a trip and shawl are saying we got to get clean. Everyone's not equal. They're cleaner, but they're still a little dirty. When they take the fort in South Carolina, um, they go through that parapet of um, water and everything like that, and they all come out clean. At that point, all the sins of racism are washed away because they're truly equal. They're in a world of pain right there. And uh, that's when Tripp sees Shaw go down and takes the flag because at that point, he views everyone as equal. What's a parapet? (laughs) giant ditch with water yeah maybe (laughs) join us next week for the toy (laughs) there was no pool in there you know when he uh got into that wonder wall well that wonder wheel what the wonder wheel represents society (laughs) and as it collapses on him that society collapsing on because of our racism just because you can't see it (laughs) i wanted to go back to the to the flogging scene Mm-hmm. As well, because that is a <laughs> <laughs> that's a funny scene. Well, Let's talk about that. It, it's what won Denzel the Oscar, I yeah. think. Amen. Right? Yeah, I think if you if take anyone, that scene out of of his performance, he's not winning the Oscar. I'm telling you, that is a turning point in the movie. Yeah, yes, that is a powerful, powerful scene. He does more acting silently with his with his face and and just uh, with his body than Matthew Broderick could ever hope to. Uh, yeah, I agree. I think the way he played that was. Perfect. Yeah. yeah, he squeezes out that one tear. That yeah. tear has yeah. more acting than Matthew Broderick. But and he becomes Denzel at yeah. that point. I mean, he is cast forever, uh, yeah. forever after as Denzel because of that. It's weird. I had read where they for him to get that expression, they show dailies of Matthew Broderick acting to him. <laughs> <laughs> it's so just, painful. He just squeezed out that one tear, and they just kept telling him he got those roles because he was white. Because <laughs> he was white. <laughs> the the other scene I wanted to talk about was the looting scene. And there's a scene where the the two different regiments join up and they go into a town and the superior officer orders uh, the burning and the looting of the town. And and I thought this was interesting, kind of your point, Greg, about how here again was an opportunity for Shaw to take a stand in the movie and show his character, show his... Very strange, too, because... And very inconsistent. I look, people are inconsistent, fine. But very inconsistent for the same person who is telling his men, do not take lower pay. Than, than white infantry right. officers are receiving. This is unjust. You are doing the You should be paid the same. And if and if you're willing to boycott being paid, we will too as officers. And, Which and can we get a, that was a weird scene, right? Because did they just not get paid? Yeah, they just got not paid. And that, so and that is for- and that is true. The, the, but the, historically, Shaw is the one that led the boycott, not kind of the other way around, where he's twisted into, "Hey, look, these men aren't, aren't going to do it." What do you say, Colonel? But then, what's the answer to that? Did, eventually, did they relent and did they? Finally, pay under those they guys did just continue it, not being after Shaw yeah, had been the, uh, killed. South paid him in bullets. <laughs> after Shaw, long after Shaw had been killed, a few months after that, they finally uh, the Union finally paid them. Uh, uh, okay, so so that would have been nice to resolve that, but yeah, so you have that, and then you have the looting scene where he just kind of relents and says, "Okay, guys, go ahead and and loot." Well, that was in Georgia, right, Greg? You did some historical research on this. Which one, the looting scene? Yeah, the looting scene when there were um, the guy the. The overseer colonel with the yeah. straw hat and is like from Kentucky, I think, right? Is that Kentucky yeah. Wildcat? Yeah, Kansas. No, no, he's Kansas, 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 Kansas Jayhawk. He's a Kansas Jayhawk. Well, was the fifty fourth one of those piece of shit basketball teams? Was the fifty fourth attached to Sherman's division went during the uh, uh, Sherman's march to the sea? I don't think so. Historically, would, I don't think that's that's accurate. Okay, that would have made more sense to loot and burn everything. Right. Well, here's here's what I read about that scene, um, and and I don't know if this research this is accurate. My research it was on the internet, but said that the in the looting scene that uh, Shaw's men maintained discipline, and so the other regiment did loot and did burn, and Shaw's men maintained discipline in real life. In real life, right? And I thought, what a better story to show that these Absolutely. guys have become 
actual soldiers. And was the other unit historically, were they white doing the looting? Because I don't understand. They're, I mean, they're talking about the, the, the 54th, how right. it's the first all black, but then you see this other regiment, and they're black soldiers. Yeah, it, it, they're more conscripted than an actual. Gover- Governor Andrew did the 54th and 55th. They were both black regiments. The 54th was the first. The 55th was. Those were the first two, but maybe by this time it had started there being more. used more. Yeah, they kept referring to them as contraband units. Right. So. But what a better scene that would have been to tell the story of these guys that have been trained and have this discipline and are able to with and, and not do that even in the face of that that they uh, and, and although they may have a desire to do that this trip character would certainly want to exact revenge and to punish these towns sure and yet to have him not do that is more powerful but from a militaristic standpoint they did maintain discipline they maintained their ranks and they only set fire to the buildings of the of the town when they were ordered to. But it's not factual. I mean, it's not even, if, if, if the research is true, it's not even historically accurate well, as to for, what happened. Well, it depends on how you define discipline. It just seems like the, the man who was willing to, to be commanding officer for an all-black unit, the man who said, f*** it, we're not, we're not taking the pay until, until you are paid uh, equally with every other soldier, the man who, who blackmailed two generals, corrupt generals, into getting the orders that he wanted for combat... Suddenly he's like, all right, yeah, we'll, we'll go ahead and commit some more crimes here. Right. 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 Under, under the guy threatening, well, I'll just, I'll, I'll command your unit and I'll bring you up on, you know, right. martial charges. Right. We'll bring it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Do you know who my daddy Do you know is? Who? <laughs> Do you know who am I? Yeah. <laughs> I was a Ferris Bueller, damn it. Right. I shook Frederick fucking Douglass's hand, <laughs> motherfucker. The other scene that uh, I didn't like, and it, it bothered me watching this film again, is a scene where... Uh, Denzel is he's working out in just a field area this is before they enter their first combat and you see the white regiment walking towards combat and he decides to go ahead and engage the white soldiers from combat they're coming back from combat because he tells them they should go back, back go the wrong way. Right, right coming from combat but he he go ahead and engages the soldiers telling them hey you know you guys wouldn't lose if if we were fighting and I just thought that that scene was too manufactured. Uh, for what it was trying to convey. Again, they were trying to convey the, the white soldiers' racism towards uh, this black regiment unit. And it was just poorly written. I don't think it needs to be there. See, I thought it was more to highlight how much these guys want to fight, that they're not content just with doing the uh, the manual labor. But it wasn't. Well, that scene was only written in for the later when they were yeah. about ready to take the forward of, hey, these guys got guts they're with us. You know, we're all. But you can no. still do that even without that scene. Even without that scene. <laughs> without that juxtaposition. Yeah, absolutely, you could. I, I think it. I, I agree with Jason. I think it's just as effective as the way it is when the guy guys give him hell fifty four at the end of the film the, it, with taking out that scene because that guy was nobody. Nobody cared. Yeah, I, I don't think most audience members would even recognize it right. as the same same guy from the pre, the previous scene. So. I'll grant you that it was manufactured, but I just don't think that last scene would have had the same poignancy to it. Oh, I, <clears throat> I disagree. I think it would. I think it would actually be better. And that brings the to kind of the, I guess, the point of kind of the end, which I always thought every time I've seen this film, it's been a little weird, uh, which is they want to volunteer for the suicide mission. Right, and they, they, <laughs> I don't they, think well, they want to, but no, they they do they do make it sound like it, they are into it, and the 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 regiment, the entire regiment is uh, this is an honor, and they want to be a part of it. And you were joking, Patrick, about you know true movie posters, what the title of this would otherwise be, The Expendables. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Expendables. So it's like, well, Cannon fodder. We so need like... somebody to go and take on this who's going to lose a lot of lives. I know. Where's that black regiment? Let's right. send them up there. Well, they didn't even originally want to send them because they were already in battle like the two days before. So. But that's where the Shaw character again comes back. This is a guy who would do this. This is a, if he's a true leader and some people just thrive in combat and he's going to be one of those guys who does it. He's been through Antietam. Although he was injured, he lived through it. Uh, he's leading his troops in battle already successfully with, you know, uh, a regiment that the movie's telling you uh, they can't do because they're black, but yet he's proving them wrong. Here, I mean, there's no reason he wouldn't volunteer and, and almost tell his troops, yeah, some of us may die, but, w- you know, we can do this. And 
again, I, I mean, when, when Matthew volunteers, I almost stood up and clapped because he did it so artfully and gracefully. <laughs> it was so powerful. But it, and it is Man. hollow, though, when you think, when, you know, when the other white regiments are saying, give them hell, 54th, I'm glad it's not us. Yeah, yeah I mean, you, you kind of wonder, it's like, how much of that? No, 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 good, good job, guys. Good, I'm yeah. glad you did it. I was about to step forward and do it, but you guys. And they don't quite pull off through the storytelling and through even the acting of this really is an honor. This is really a positive thing. And this is a good thing for this, this regimen. There's still this a bit of, yeah, they're still doing our slave labor. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, and, and that's a problem with that, that last scene of, Oh, you know, the, the beach is so narrow. Only run regiment can go through while the other regiments sit back and do something else. I mean, the civil war battles, you just lined up and you just hoped that uh, the people you were lined up against were a little bit weaker than you. How historically accurate was that? that there was only one approach. Do we know? I believe no. that's true because they had swamp and and beach. Yeah, and, the beach. On the, uh, yeah. But they were talking about one. That was why it was difficult to take that fort. Has to go there and, and pin them down long enough for them to, to right. flank them or find another way in. While they're the occupied. Right. While the Confederates are occupied with that one regiment. Right. But then they never really show up. Yeah, and I, I don't know why they bring that, in artillery and just start firing cannons. Well, they had. The Navy had been hitting it for a day. <laughs> and then they stopped, yeah. But yeah, it, it's, it seems like a really bad plan and even worse execution. I, but good the plan to go left attack during daylight? Yeah. Well, I did want to talk about the, the storytelling, just generally from, from a Hollywood perspective, where they're telling the story of the 54th, but it has to be told, you know, in 1980 or in the 80s from the white perspective that it, it has to be told through a white character and through white eyes uh, presumably in order for audiences to embrace it well then they tell it because they were based on shaw's letters that were at the harvard museum that was kind of the beginning of the film yeah and they, they do those letters and it's just it, i just find it so and, and i understand that was that was the um material that kind of inspired it but there were also other books that they really used as well. They just decided to to use actual letters that he wrote, narrated very poorly. Well, by and then Matthew they Barrett. abandoned. Well, so Harrison many, Ford wasn't available. <laughs> <laughs> they abandoned so many historical facts and just go headlong into fiction. So it just it. I, I kind of I agree with you, Matt. I I think that's a device that was tailored to appeal to a wider audience, thinking, well, no one's going to listen to Morgan Freeman. Which is ironic because now Morgan Freeman is making Plays a nice God. living playing God and the narrator. The narrator, you know these the and had they had storyteller of all storytellers. Yeah, had they had confidence in their actors if they had seen what they have with Denzel and uh, and Morgan Freeman and really let those characters drive it, you probably would have ended up with a much better film. And and I'd argue even a more uh, successful one. I would even like to see uh, Gary. <laughs> kidding carrie elwes as the uh broderick character i think he could have pulled it off no i think i thought i thought they should have reversed reversed those two roles if they that did. or gary Busey. but yeah <laughs> reversing and then you got any peanuts oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the other thing that i always remember about glory anyway is the is the music does anyone else have would anyone have the soundtrack or remember the music being i don't like rv <laughs> Harlem that was Bo just the end. Harlem <laughs> Boys Choir. So. Yeah, no, Harlem, Harlem Boys Boys Choir. So uh, I own the soundtrack. I think it's one of the best soundtracks that's but it was ever made. Yeah. I really love it. And they use they still to this day use the music in, in trailers a lot, in a lot of trailers. <laughs> yeah. So I, I said it was we were watching this. This and Last of the Mohicans are the only two soundtracks that matter for me. I mean they're <laughs> both great, but this one is great. If you haven't heard it, go YouTube it, go iTunes it, whatever, and you can just put it on. Uh, Going to do Michael Scott and just keep playing the preview over and over and over. You're like, a, my favorite soundtracks are movies about white guys playing minorities or leading minorities. <laughs> All that music's great. The battle scenes are, are terrific. I, I think even even in, from our perspective now, after Saving Private Ryan and some in CGI, the age of CGI, yeah. I think they this still holds up very well. Yeah, I, it, it's surprising. I remember watching this. When it first came out, and really liking the battle scenes, now with the invention of, of CGI and all of that, when I did see the Battle of Antietam, I'm I'm wondering, is this the Antietam that we all know? Right. But like, where is everybody? Because with right. the computer, yeah. they would have been adding yeah. people. And I think they did a good job with the seeing what it really was like back in the 1860s. I remember um, a lot of schools uh, where I grew up 
use this as a kind of a supplement to uh, of what it was like to live in this time period and be in the Civil War. Jacob's from the South. The South will rise again. <laughs> <laughs> the Midwest is obviously this is a documentary right. about Northern aggression. <laughs> 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 Don't so it's not Antietam, it's Sharpsburg. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't traded in my Confederate dollars yet. <laughs> what are the three? Uh, what are, What are the three Oscars that won for again? Uh, best sound, best cinematography, and best supporting actor. All right. So okay. sound or best music? It wins sound. Best sound, not like, for not for music. No. Huh. But so it's got the cinematography. It's got um, the Wizard won for music. <laughs> <laughs> But it wasn't nominated for film, and and what else was what was what won that year? Driving Miss Daisy won that year. Oh. Yeah. What else was up? Uh, Dead Poets Society, Born oh. on the Fourth of July, in other gay news, Field of Dreams, <laughs> and My Left Foot. Huh. You know, I've seen them all. The Math- Matthew Broderick had some stiff competition with Daniel Day Lewis. <laughs> yeah, My Left what? Foot. Yeah. <laughs> well, I thought Matthew Broderick would have been fine in Dead Poets Society. I think he can play a gay kid. <laughs> He would have been better for, with one of the kids. Yeah. Right? He could have pulled that off. Robin Williams would have been better as the commander of this army. <laughs> my captain, my captain. Oh, oh, captain, my captain. You know what? We're going to take this fort right over here. Right. And we're going to do it like this. Woo, 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 woo. I heard they got blow. <laughs> but was this considered a snub at the time? I, You know, I don't think it was. At the time, I don't. I, to be quite honest with you, when the. Uh, Oscar nominations came out. I had not seen this film yet, so I don't remember. Not very many people had. Yeah, it, it wasn't. It wasn't very, a big film, right? Um, it, although it did get five nominations, it, there was not a real talk about a snubbing of it. The only one I I'd seen, well, I'd actually seen Born on the Fourth of July, Dead Poets Society, and Field of Dreams um, prior to the Oscar nominations coming out. I saw this a couple about a month after the Oscars, after it won, and I absolutely loved it, and then went. Why wasn't this nominated for Best Picture? This is just, it just was kind of shocking to me. And in, in retrospect, I think it's better than. I, well, I honestly think it's better than all five of the films that were nominated that year. So definitely better than Driving Miss Daisy or My Left Foot. Although those have good acting performances, mm-hmm. I think this is a better story than that. Yeah, although still, I, well, I mean, it's way better than Dead Poet Society. Yeah, I, I like Dead Poet Society. I know your feel. I, I would, I probably like it better than Dead Poet Society, but I can see why Dead Poet Society was nominated. But it's too bad because the story is still lacking, and they could have done such a better job with it. But yeah, I, it, I honestly think if it didn't get nominated for Best Picture, the only thing that sunk it was Matthew Broderick's performance. Mm-hmm. It absolutely did sink yeah. it. Yeah, I think you so. cannot watch this film and think, "My God." This, this is, guy's horrible. Yeah, this right. is the best yeah. picture of the year. If I just if the don't main watch, actor isn't in yeah. it, yeah, Bueller, yeah, Bueller. Uh, let's break this down. Whether or not it stands the test of time, eighty nine to two thousand twelve. Greg definitely stands the test of time. Uh, very powerful movie. I remember seeing it in the theater, probably around Oscar time, because I think that's when a lot of people discovered this movie. And uh, I enjoyed it then. Thought it was very powerful. And watching it, I, even though it is a flawed movie. Uh, it's still extremely powerful with uh, terrific performance by Denzel Washington. I agree. This de- movie definitely stands the test of time. It uh, it's a great period piece. Um, it's uh, the the battle scenes are are phenomenal, even um, compared to today's with uh, the Patriot and some of the other movies that have come out since then. It's uh, I want to say it, it's a, a Knight's Tale. And <laughs> what the hell did that come from? I don't know. It stands the test of time. I liked it then. I like it now, despite Matthew Broderick's bad acting. Yeah. I saw it in the theaters. I loved it at the time. I, I, I recognize all the faults in it. I even recognize Matthew Broderick as being piss poor in this film at the time. I I know a lot of the uh, people who defend his performance saying he's supposed to be naive and inexperienced, and that's why he comes off as wooden and it's supposed to be unsure. I, it, it, to me, it's perceived as unsure of how I should act in this particular role. That sounds like a real, it's just a cop-out. No, 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 no. He was supposed to be wooden and no, disjointed no, 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 and no, no, not no. convincing. And naive. And it, I mean, and, he only was at the Battle of Antietam. No, Shaw, and not genuine. No, Shaw was autistic. He just didn't know how to express feelings. So. And monotone. Definitely, definitely, definitely take the fort. Definitely take the fort. Definitely. No, no. Fort, fort. Got to be, got to be very monotone okay. in your delivery. Of course, I'm an excellent writer. Excellent writer. T R I P P. My main man. T R I P P. My main man. <laughs> but no, I, I I agree with both Greg and Jay Jay that it's an outstanding film. It still stands the test of time, even though it's flawed. Um, but 
the Denzel Washington performance in this film is just something that should be seen, and uh, he was well deserving of the Oscar. And I still think it stands. Still think it's a good film today. And Morgan Freeman is good in it too. Well, Morgan, everybody in it, but Matthew Broderick yeah. is good. But Denzel Washington's performance is one of those few performances that I think, especially the the, the whipping scene. That is just so memorable and so powerful that it should be seen as, you know, true. What an actor can do without even saying anything. Right. That's it's art. I mean, I don't say that too often about, you know, movies. This, but this it, film and Revenge of the Nerds. If I it's art. Yeah. No, the, the Bush scene there. You've got you've got the Bush scene and the whipping scene. Absolute art. Yeah. yeah I'm a Civil War denier. So <laughs> pure fantasy. I don't have anything to add. I think you guys summed up my feelings as well. I think it stands, of course, it stands the test of time. Uh, I do find it a little slow, a little long. It's, yeah, that's not surprising. That <laughs> is. It does overcome that. Because the man who said airplane was a little over long <laughs> at 87 minutes. <laughs> no, it is a little, a little long. It's a little slow developing as they're doing the training and whatnot, but it's overcome. It's a good, it's a good movie. Very well acted other than Matthew Broderick and it stands the test of time. You go check it out if you haven't seen it yet. And if you have, go watch it again. Well, that's it for today's classic episode of Lunchtime Movie Review. Please let us know what you think of the film in the comments section on our website and rate it from one to five stars on that page as well. If there is an 80s film you'd like us to review, please send us an email at comments at moviehousememories.com with your name, your pick, and your location. And finally, if you are of the social media persuasion, you can look the MHM Podcast Network up on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And if you do, please give us a follow when you find us. On behalf of the whole gang here at Lunchtime Movie Review, thanks for tuning in. And until next time, we have to get out of here, and you guys are invited. This podcast is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. The theme song for Lunchtime Movie Review, Fireworks, is brought to you by Alexander Nakarada at SerpentineSoundStudios.com under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. All original content of this podcast is the intellectual property of Lunchtime Movie Review, the MHM Podcast Network, and Fuzzy Bunny Slippers Entertainment, LLC, unless otherwise, nope.